folks. Welcome to True Crime or Tall Tale. I'm Jack. And I'm Kat. This is the show where each episode we tell you two stories about disturbing crimes. One is true, the other not so much. How's everyone doing? I'm doing great. I mean, I got some tummy troubles, but that's that's about it. I'm fine. I took some Pepto-Bismol. Now I'm fine. I'm, I'm glad you're good. <laughs> tummy troubles, they come with the territory. Time to record a podcast. I'd say you're here. Mm-hmm. You have easy access to a bathroom. I do. I am, well. I am in my own home. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know, we record this in my bedroom. Yeah, it's not as um, salacious as it sounds. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, this episode. Speaking of salacious, am I right? Oh, absolutely. Oh, oh my God, what a good... <laughs> What, what a, a good, good segue. segue that I totally miss out on. <laughs> Speaking of salacious, <laughs> this episode, we are talking about Black Widows. Phenomenal. For anyone who's ever gone through a bad breakup, I think we've all had to restrain ourselves from committing crimes. <laughs> Don't perjure yourself, Jacqueline. <laughs> I, I admit to nothing. Um, officer, it happened so quickly. I don't know how his house is on fire. I really, really don't. <laughs> This is all a joke for legal reasons. Because it is a joke. It is a joke. The house is still standing. I checked. <laughs> Got Google Street View. <laughs> I totally didn't drive by there with gasoline in my trunk. You're, you're so right. You're so right. This is still a bit. Guys, <laughs> please understand this. I've been through a lot. Yeah. And Jack- I'm going to make I'm gonna make some jokes about wanting to kill a man. And they're just... They're, they're strictly they're just jokes. Jokes. I haven't planned it. We're fine. I can't <laughs> Everyone host is... this. I, I can't host this podcast on my own. So I, I do. She is my partner in crime, in crimes that we are not committing. Only in crimes that we are talking about in a retrospective way. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's correct. <laughs> uh, listen, everyone is blocked and alive. And that's how you should leave a breakup. Exactly. Blocked with, but alive. With grace. <laughs> <laughs> and dignity. And poise. Here's the thing. I am dignified over text message. I cry in our kitchen a lot. That's okay. That's, you know, it's a part of it. It is a healing journey. You're going to be fine. Jack has been through it. And then I got in that car accident. And then you got into a car accident. So, um, Jack's I'm fine. It. Jack is also alive. Um, so you know. I'm also alive and maybe blocked. Don't know. <laughs> Ella, Ella, my dear um, little Elantra is in the shop. Because someone sideswiped me on the highway coming home from work. So I'm driving a rental. So Oh, you're still driving that rental, huh? Yeah, not not the not the giant minivan. Oh, okay. Um the little Corolla. I never got to see you in a mom minivan. Yeah, I hate it. It's too big. It's too big. And like, yes, lady, sometimes it's too big. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, that our happened. parents listen to this podcast. Well, okay. The- <laughs> that happened well well, not the car accident, oh, it was but too the big. minivan. <laughs> No, the minivan happened while I was away dropping off artwork for an art show. Guys, I'm an artist. I'm plugging yes. that real quick. Just so y'all know, even though most of you who listen already probably know, the cover art? Yours truly, kid. Jack did the type, because I'm not a graphic designer. Again, I am. <laughs> for any newbies out there, we are recovering art students. Oh, yeah. We have degrees. We maybe use them. No one really knows. We use them now for a podcast. Woo! Anyway, we should probably get into that now anyway, instead of distracting ourselves. That's how everyone's doing, just to wrap that up. <laughs> We're talking about Black Widows this week. This episode. Spiders? Yes. Wonderful. I, ki- I killed the spider this morning! You I did. knew it! 
This episode is about me. I committed a crime. Perfect. Okay. So I have two very different kind of stories for you today to kind of give us a well-rounded view of what is a Black Widow killer. Tell me everything about it. Black Widow killers, in a murderous sense, is a term used to refer to women who kill their husbands or lovers. Mm Mm-hmm. Where does the term come from, one might ask? Spiders. Yes. It comes from the quote-unquote myth that female black widow spiders eat their male counterparts after mating. Wait, it's a myth? My eyes are opened. So the male black widow spider is about half the size of the female. So she can pretty easily overpower him, which good for her. Um, (laughs) This behavior was observed in black widow spiders in captivity by scientists, but it's believed that this behavior is far less common in the wild and occurs so often in captivity because the males can't get away from the female spider as easily. Oh, okay. So what that tells me is that the female black widows always want to kill the males. They just don't always have the opportunity. Sometimes they're too slick and they get away. Um, So that's why I said quote unquote myth because it's now somewhat debunked in terms of they believe it does not happen nearly as much in the wild as it does in captivity. All right. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot more exits in, um, in the wild than if you're in like a you're 10 foot by 10 or I don't know, a little glass jar, a, a little jar. You can't really <laughs> get away. Also, how weird is it to think of like two spiders in a Mason jar and a scientist has been like, will you fuck already? <laughs> to talk about voyeurism. Jeez the weird. Yeah. Scientists, you dirty, dirty rats. <laughs> what, what, Lab what, rats, if you will. What can we say? So, in some of my research, I found that a Black Widow killer was defined as a woman who kills at least three husbands or lovers for financial gain. Mm-hmm. Other definitions simply define it as a woman who kills one or more of her lovers for any motive. Phenomenal. So, as not to perjure myself, I'll give you both definitions. <laughs> Thank you. Gotta gotta cover the bases. Yes. And sometimes the Black Widow narrative involves women taking revenge against abusive husbands or lovers. So they also fall into this umbrella category. Also, I found while doing the research, Black Widows is used to refer to female suicide bombers, usually on a mission to avenge a dead husband. Oh. This definition specifically refers to the 2007 Chechen suicide bombings on Russian special forces. The Russian and international press called these female bombers the Black Widows once it became known that they were avenging the deaths of male family members. Huh. So is that almost where, like, Black Widow, like, from Marvel would get more of her, like, name from that rather than, like, you know... I'd say, I imagine... three husbands and I'm in that, like, fancy robe. Naturally enough, Black Widow from Marvel is my next bullet point. Oh my god, it's like I can read your mind! Um, I imagine, I mean, that was 2007. I believe Black Widow as a Marvel comic book character is much older. Oh, you're so right. Um, I didn't listen to you say a single date. I, <laughs> I just skipped right past that fact. That's fine. Um, I try to put in a lot of dates, but I'm also okay if no one listens to them. <laughs> Additionally, many of you have probably heard of Black Widow as a Marvel superhero, Natasha Romanov. Her backstory is as a KGB assassin in the Red Room Project. The Red Room Project specifically trained young women to complete espionage missions, presumably with male targets. So this does lean into the cultural idea of what a Black Widow 
is mm. in terms of a woman killing a man. Yeah. Female killers, especially serial killers, are considered somewhat rare. Yet, like, I think because they're rare, we feel the need to create these special terms for them. Like, put them in this very kind of niche category. Yeah, it's like their, it's like their own, like, brand of things. Yes. To give you some statistics, mm-hmm. because we all know I love those. We do love statistics, especially Jacqueline. Yes. I like hearing them from her. In 2022, there were 15,094 murder offenders in the United States who were male in comparison to 2,107 who were female. However, there were also 5,857 murder offenders where their gender is unknown, according to statistics.com. So to kind of break that down, even if we say that all the 5,857 were female, that's still about half of the known male killers. So just to give you some gender statistics on like, how disproportionately murder is committed by men. <laughs> right, yeah. Anyway, with statistics over, with no further ado, allow me to tell you some stories. I would love to hear some stories right now. Perfect. Story time! I'm all tucked in! <laughs> Ready to hear about black widows! I was about to call, I was about to say black spiders. <laughs> Wrong. Nope. That's, we, I've not, given you all my spider facts. We're not talking about spiders anymore. <laughs> you hear that? No more spiders allowed in this room. I had to kill one this morning. Nearly took down my curtains. <laughs> really did. Anyway, please. Talk my ear off, darling. Anyway, so we're going to get into our first case. This particular case does have a very large trigger warning for domestic violence and child or pregnancy loss. I will give you a more specific trigger warning for the child or pregnancy loss as we get closer to it, but just so everyone knows what we're dealing with. Yeah. So, our first case takes place in 1968 in Randolph, North Carolina. Sweet, the 60s, man. Brittany Lowenson grew up in the small town of Randolph, North Carolina. She was the youngest of three siblings with two older brothers. Unfortunately, both her parents died when she was 17 in a car accident. Oh. Shortly after their passing, she started working in the fields of a local tobacco farm to help support herself. Tobacco farming was a prominent industry in the area at the time. It often attracts locals and migrant workers for the planting and harvest season from April to August. About two years after she started working on the farm, when Brittany was 19, she met Jack McKent. Jack was a handsome 23-year-old who came into Randolph in August of 1968 to work the tobacco harvest. Jack grew up in New Hampshire, but had been moving up and down the East Coast as a migrant worker since he finished high school, following the planting and harvesting seasons for different crops. He liked being on the move, seeing different places, and not having to stay in one place for too long. He very much thrived in that pick-up-and-go lifestyle. Yeah, he was like a nomadic soul. Yes. According to coworkers and friends, the pair were immediately drawn to each other and quickly struck up a romance. You know. Oh, wait, I forgot the theme. <laughs> <laughs> I went, ooh, romance. Wait. Wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. He's in danger. <laughs> Get um, out of there. Anyway, but could you blame her? A handsome, slightly older man rolls into town, starts working with you. I would hit that too. Yeah, understandable. Um, Is she going to hit him over the head with like a hammer or something? All will be revealed in time. In time. I got to be patient. Can't guess the plot. Brittany desperately wanted to leave her hometown. She felt 
the overwhelming memory of her parents and their passing and that legacy to be suffocating, along with really wanting to escape the sweltering summers of North Carolina. She wanted to go somewhere cooler. Did you say that she was the youngest or the oldest of the three kids? The youngest. The youngest. Okay, so, okay. I was like, oh, is she working and raising her siblings? No, I got I got the orders reversed. She's fine. They're fine. She wants to get out. Yeah, like, as far as I could tell, she, like, would stay with her brothers or she would um, couch surf with friends. I mean, she's 19. She hadn't, like, fully established herself as an adult. Right. But she wasn't, like, living on the streets. Right. The family was doing its best to support each other, all being a late teen or in their early 20s, having lost their parents. Right, right. So she saw Jack and his drifter, nomadic lifestyle as her ticket to a better place. Like I mentioned, Brittany went from kind of couch surfing or staying with her brothers to staying at Jack's trailer, having basically moved in after about a month of dating. In the early days of their relationship, the couple often fantasized about hitchhiking out west to start over. Okay, so they're, they're both into this nomadic lifestyle. Yeah, like Jack's lived it. As far as I could tell, he used public transport or hitchhiking to get from harvest season to harvest season. And Brittany was very much like, I want to get out of here. It's the 60s. We might as well hitchhike. It's the 60s, man. <laughs> Jack stayed in Randolph with Brittany even after the harvest season ended, working odd jobs around town until the tobacco planting season returned in April. Aw, we stuck around in one place. Yeah. But not everything was perfect in their budding romance. Oh. Brittany was known to have a fiery temper when upset. In addition, Jack was fond of the bottle and was a notoriously angry drunk. Mm. So that added gasoline to a fire. Jack's aggressive drinking became very apparent in the winter when work was slow. More than once, he had to be bailed out of jail for starting bar fights. And by April of 1969, Brittany was sure of two things. Jack hit her when he drank, and she was pregnant. Oh, the drama of it all. I'm so sorry you that you dropped a bomb on me there. Yeah, and I mean, those are two pretty horrific things to hold in each hand. Mm-hmm. I'm pregnant and he's abusive. Mm. So Brittany had suffered physical abuse from Jack in the weeks leading up to the pregnancy. It was always when he drank or when, or when he was drunk and he would act desperately sorry when he sobered up, saying he had lost control and promising that it would never happen again. This, like in many domestic violence situations, was a lie. It always happened again. It would only get worse from here, and Jack resented staying in Randolph during the slow season and took that out on Brittany. He also became more controlling and demanding more of her time. Your pretty classic abuse Mm -hmm. behavior. So despite Brittany wanting to get out of town and start somewhere new, she was actually very excited about the pregnancy. She was really excited to be a mom. Good for her. It's a little beacon of hope in, in a stormy sea. Right. Jack, however, did not see the pregnancy as a good thing. The Damn I- it. <laughs> the idea of being a parent and putting down roots made him feel like the walls were closing in. When Brittany first told him about her pregnancy, he tried to convince her to get an abortion. Abortion before 20 weeks was legal in North Carolina from 1967 to 2019. So in 1969, that was a viable option if Brittany wanted it. Mm -hmm. But she didn't. She wanted to be a mom. She wanted to have this baby. She was horrified when Jack strongly suggested getting an abortion. And it led to an explosive fight between the couple. And of course, it was no secret in the southern town that not only was Jack an abusive drunk, but now Brittany was pregnant out of wedlock. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of also 
social pariahs. Yeah, they're ostracized in this community. Like, Mm. they kind of are doing everything everyone hates in a small southern town in the late 60s. Yep. Oh, every... Oh, the gossip... I could only imagine. Yes. So the gossip mill was running nearly nonstop. Yes. I'm just You're out. writing this for <laughs> me. I'm like pulling out your words. Like, I'm just like, ooh. And you're like, well, actually. Well, my next well, point. Well, that you say that. <laughs> so with the gossip mill running nearly nonstop, this left Brittany feeling even more isolated and with nowhere to turn to. Shortly after Brittany realized she was pregnant, the tobacco planning season started back up and the two returned to work. Brittany hoped that the return to steady work would calm Jack's drinking down because it had gotten worse in the winter when things were slow. Unfortunately, things in the relationship only got worse as the summer heat rolled in. Mm -hmm. By August, Brittany was approximately 19 weeks into a healthy pregnancy, but the manual labor in the heat was too much for her. She had to leave work on doctor's orders. This made things even more tense in the relationship. Mm, Because she's not, like, also bringing in... Right. Money's tight... She didn't have a reason to leave the house as much. Jack's already controlling with her time, and now you're just with each other all the time. Yeah. And on August 27th, 1969, the tension turned deadly. So let me let me set the scene. The trailer Jack was renting was isolated on the outskirts of the farm's property. A back deck or stoop was built onto the trailer off of the back door. This deck was slightly elevated and had about six steps leading to the ground just to kind of give you an idea of what we're working with here. According to Brittany's accounts after the fact, because she survives because it's a Black Widow episode, Jack had been drinking with co-workers after work, and when he returned after 2 a.m., they started arguing. This is where I'm going to give that secondary trigger warning for intense domestic violence, violence against a pregnant woman, and loss of a pregnancy or baby. Oh, no. Um, I know what's going to happen. Yeah. The two of them were moving throughout the trailer during the argument. They eventually moved towards the back door and the deck. Jack shoved Brittany out the door. He hit her and pushed her down the back stairs. She lost consciousness after falling down the stairs. When she came to on the ground, she was bleeding heavily from her genitals and had intense labor pains. Not entirely sure what was happening. She went to the bathroom to try and stop the bleeding with a towel. In reality, Brittany was miscarrying due to the violence and trauma. A miscarriage at 22 weeks can be referred to as a stillbirth and usually requires laboring to get the fetus or baby out of the mother. She went through that ordeal all by herself in the middle of the night, just in this bathroom. Did he leave? Like, was he... He, when she came to, she didn't see him. She went right to the bathroom and at no point did he check on her. Mm. By the time she realized what was happening, it was too late to call for help. When she finally was able to get up off the bathroom floor, she wrapped the stillborn baby in a blanket and didn't really know what to do. Obviously, she'd just been through this terribly traumatic event. Mm -hmm. But that's when she saw Jack passed out in a lawn chair in the backyard. Oh! And he was still clutching a bottle of whiskey. Fucking, oh, God. Douchebag. I, I don't, I, I wish I had w- more words, like, <laughs> to sum up. Right. Seeing this and blaming him for the fact that he just lost their baby, Brittany went into the bedroom, opened the bedside drawer, and pulled out Jack's pistol. She returned to the backyard, and while she was still asleep, she unloaded the clip into his chest. She would later be quoted as saying the following about the murder. 
He took away the one good thing we made, and for that he had to pay. After she was able to stop her own bleeding and clean herself up, she started digging. That night, she buried Jack and their baby in the backyard. The next day, she packed up a bag, which included the gun. She took the murder weapon with her. And Brittany began hitchhiking on Route 64, heading west. She described the first day of hitchhiking as uneventful. She felt numb from the previous night's events and avoided small talk with anyone who gave her a ride. The graves behind the trailer were discovered five days later. Jack's employer and co-workers came looking for him after two days of not showing up to work. On the fourth day, they called in a wellness check at the trailer. There was no answer when a local sheriff officer knocked on the door. Officers returned on the fifth day, September 1st. This time, they looked around the trailer and noticed the two patches of disturbed earth in the back, which is never good news. Mm. They were in the backyard. That's a good show. I've never seen it. I love that show so much. (laughs) We don't have cable, so I can't, like, show you all these shows, that like, the crime shows that I would watch with my parents. But that one was one, and it's really good. Fear Thy Neighbor is another one that's like, I wonder if they're on, like, Investigation Discovery or some streaming platform. You know what? You're so right. We should track that down. Sorry. Little aside there. Yeah, we, yes, we... We can watch some Buried in the Backyard. Yeah, let's watch some Buried in the Backyard. Trust me, this story needed some levity at this point. (laughs) We got really heavy and there was like not really anything I could like, you know, be whimsical about. Yes. So. Anyway. It's fine. It's a crime podcast, guys. Thank you for throwing that out there. There's only so much whimsy we can have. Absolutely. So, after seeing the disturbed the officers began to dig. And they unearthed Jack from a shallow grave with nine bullet wounds in his chest, and the baby girl in a much smaller grave, wrapped in blankets with care and tucked into a shoebox. So there's this stark difference between... Something tossed aside and then something... Like... So much love. Yeah, there very much was a... The vibe of she had disposed of Jack's body, she buried it to hide it, and she had, like... A funeral. Right, she, like, gave this child a resting place yeah like it's it paints a picture real real clear considering britney was known to reside at the trailer but was nowhere to be found she was our number one suspect but at this point she had already made it out of the state oh shit because it's five days on the lamb like she's been traveling for five days god damn she like hightailed it out of there oh absolutely you think she was gonna stick around town after (laughs) she went nope this small town has fucking Ears and oh. eyes everywhere. I feel like the police probably would have been like, yeah, no, she is the one who did this because there's a, you know, baby. And everyone probably knows that she was pregnant, too. Yes. So it's like, mm, I think we can rub two stones together here and make a fire. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, there was no way she was, like, going to be able to talk her way out of this one. Like, yeah. she needed to flee. She, yeah, on the run. So after the story hit the local paper, Bert Kaplan came forward as a witness. Who did? Bert Kaplan. Bert Kaplan. Okay. Um, he is just a local resident of Randolph, and he said he gave Brittany a ride on the 27th. When he asked where she was heading, she just said west. He recognized her from around town and noticed she didn't seem to be showing as much as she was a few weeks ago. Wait, is she back in town or is this out in a different state? No, so this is the 27th, so before the bodies have been found. This oh, is her first okay. fleeing. Okay, first flee. Okay, um, cool. We're back in time. Yeah, so after the, the bodies were found and the story hit the paper, this man came forward saying, hey, I gave Brittany a ride. And Yeah, carry on. I'm caught up now. <laughs> <laughs> 
he had said um, she didn't seem to be showing as much as she had a few weeks ago, but also she didn't have the baby with her either. This confirmed to the investigators that there wasn't a third party involved and that Brittany had left town of her own volition. But it also led investigators to believe that she was fleeing the state and would try to get as far away as possible as quickly as possible. Yeah. Like, if someone gets in your car to hitchhike and you're like, where are you headed? And she's just like, west. <laughs> west. There doesn't seem to be a very specific destination. Yeah. You're just trying to get the hell out of Dodge. Yeah. So, um, this launched a multi-state manhunt. Ebola was issued to many of the neighboring states and Brittany's name and picture were on the nightly news. The story quickly hit the national news cycle and the media had a field day. Brittany was a young, pretty woman accused of murdering her boyfriend and burying him and her baby in the backyard. Like, you can see how this would have just been a media This frenzy. is sensational. Yes, this makes for great television. <laughs> it makes for great many things. This is great. I mean, it's not great what happened. No. You know what I mean. It's, it's, no, like, it's awful. It's, it's like very easily like a newspaper headline. Yes. You know? And it's not over. On September 7th, a body was discovered off Route 64 outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. This male victim, identified as 39-year-old Grant Norseem, was shot twice in the chest with a 22 caliber pistol. The pistol that Jack owned was also a 22 caliber. Oh my god, she's on a killing spree. So, based on the amount of blood at the crime scene, local police could tell that he was shot there and the body wasn't moved. Shell casings were found at the scene along with his wallet but minus any cash. Mm. Oh, oh, okay. So Grant was married and a father to two young boys. He often traveled around Tennessee for work. He was last seen at a diner the day before, the day before his body was found. A waitress recalled there was a young girl asking the patrons if anyone was heading west and if she could hitchhike. She was just telling everyone that she was hitchhiking across the country. This diner got most of its business from travelers off of Route 64, so it wasn't unusual to have the occasional hitchhiker looking for their next ride. According to the waitress, Grant offered the woman a ride when he finished his meal, and they both left in his car. Mm. Notably, Grant's car wasn't found at the scene. Oh, shit! Oh, she! Oh, my God! Mm -hmm. So, the killer must still have it, or had dumped it elsewhere. Now, can you guess who this young hitchhiker might be? <laughs> I couldn't, couldn't guess. Could it be Brittany? Yes. <laughs> Investigators on Grant's case couldn't help but notice that the description of the young hitchhiker matched a certain wanted poster for a woman wanted for murder in North Carolina, mm. who was also known to be hitchhiking west. Mm. So, when investigators requested more information about the North Carolina case, they noticed a twenty-two caliber pistol was also used. They sent the shell casings from the scene to the North Carolina Police Department, who confirmed they came from the same gun that shot Jack. So now they have this very definitive link between Jack's murder and Grant's murder. Mm, there we go. Brittany's now wanted for two murders, and everyone knew it. Like, it, this was very quickly, like, released to the media that the hitchhiker out of North Carolina has killed again. Killed again? She would later say after her capture that when she left North Carolina, she didn't plan on hurting anyone else. She just wanted to avoid going to jail. But after she left the diner with Grant, he brought up the North Carolina murders and the fact that the police were looking for a young female hitchhiker. Mm -hmm. He hadn't accused her of anything outright, but she was scared that he would either drive her to a police station or report her as soon as he dropped her off. Yeah. 
It's a risk that she yeah it couldn't. It got dicey in her perspective, and he had to go. And I mean, uh, yeah, like not you know not giving her like like oh yeah like here's reasoning behind her committing serial murder. But it's like you know she's in like a high stress situation. She could be going through like some sort of psychotic break. Yeah, absolutely. Like and. That's it. Like she that's went not, through that that's not an excuse, she... but it's a it's a reasoning, you know. Right. These aren't Where it's random like if you're... murders from murders. So you, yeah. Like... It's like if your mind is addled because of a situation that literally wrecked your shit. Like, yikes! But I get I get it. I don't condone it. Right. Get get some help. But she had a very clear motive. Yeah. So once they reached a quiet portion of the highway, Brittany brandished the pistol from her backpack and made Grant pull over near the guardrail. She ordered him to get out of the car, but leave the keys. And after making him hop the guardrail, Brittany shot him three times in the chest. She stole his black 67 Chevy Impala and all the cash from his wallet. So there is now a coast-to-coast nationwide search for Brittany. Now, just consider how the media would have also would have ate this development up also. Oh my god. They'd be like, she struck again! Right, like... She's on the run. She's wanted for the death of two men. The public was intrigued by this cross-country manhunt. The discovery of Grant's body furthered the femme fatale image of Brittany. Yeah. It paints a a striking sort of concept for for it. Like, this is very, like, it sets the stage for, like, some semblance of theatricality to it. Yeah. Like, you could easily write this into, like, a, like, a, like, film adaptation or something like that. Like, that... It has all the makings of grandeur. Grand, it's, uh, delusions of grandeur. Like, it's yes. it's setting the stage. And there's many, like, cases like that. It's, like, wild. Yeah, yeah, But absolutely. this has, like, everything. People are like, a lady killer. <gasps> oh. She struck again. She, she got revenge for, you know, losing her baby. And then she struck again. And it's just, like, the case, you know, it keeps developing. So it's so nice yeah, and Yeah, and it's developed. It's not coming out all at once. Like, right. You're getting new information over these weeks or or these days. So, yeah, people definitely were tuning back in tuning to see what in. was going to happen yeah. next. So, the media, loving the the theatrics of it all, decided to make it more theatrical. And they started referring to her as a Black Widow killer, the Phantom Rider, and most notably, Orphan of the Interstate. Okay. So, now she has a name. <laughs> God damn it, we need to stop giving killers monikers, man. We, we, we make them sound too cool. Exactly. Like, Phantom Rider? Phantom Rider? Like, Jesus. Jesus! Who are you? Nick Cage and Ghost Rider? Jeez <laughs> Louise! I know, I'm like... Stop giving killers cool names. But also, remember, it's 68. Like, this is the height. This is this all the serial killers of the 70s and 80s. Like, this is the beginning this of that. The, like, the, the media is, get, is being primed to be like... They all need names. Mm-hmm. We need easy ways to talk about and this. You, well, I mean, it's, it's not even the first time. I mean, fucking the gentleman pirate, Steve Bonnet didn't do oh. that himself. <laughs> exactly. Like, the show made it seem like that, but he didn't do that himself. No, that, cool. was, that was media, baby. The media. Stop giving villains cool names. Stop just, it. Just kidding. It's kind of funny. Don't do it. But don't do it. Stop giving real murderers cool names. Yes. Anyway. Everyone was looking for the Black Impala. That was Grant's. But fortunately for Brittany, and unfortunately for everyone else, that was the most popular car in the late 60s. Mm. So making it easier for her to blend in, it kind of reminds me of Ted Bundy driving a 
VW Bug in the 70s. Yeah. And, like, really? The one most popular car? No one notices black cars. No, they're every... Most cars are black. I mean, granted, I think the 60s, there were a lot of colorful cars. Yeah. But still, it's... It's nondescript. Yeah. So, for whatever reason, Brittany didn't dump the car. She just kept driving it. She just kept driving west. She had made it all the way to Taos, New Mexico, before police intercepted her. On September 11th, a New Mexico highway patrolman clocked the Impala as speeding and changing lanes without a blinker. When he called in the police- Girl, if you're on the run, you gotta follow the rules of the road You have to follow every traffic rule. Like- not giving you advice, but god damn. Like, I'm just like, listen, I speed and I maybe sometimes forget to use my blinker, but if I were wanted, <laughs> I'd do be you like, know how paranoid I'd be about not doing that? <laughs> you want to know a fun fact about me? Anytime I've played Grand Theft Auto, <laughs> I try very hard to follow the rules of the road as much as possible in that game. And that game makes you run fast. And I'm terrible at it because it like you're like speeding. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's wait here. Oh, look, there's a car. Oh, I'm going to make my turn now. <laughs> Even though the whole point of that game is to be committing crime. I'm not giving you advice. Fuck off. <laughs> Actually, no criminals can listen to our podcast. How the fuck are we going to moderate that? I have no idea. But, you know, I said it. So anyway, back to um, Brittany breaking traffic laws. When the patrolman called the plates into the station, they came back as stolen and in connection to an unsolved murder. Mm. So <laughs> there we go. There we go. Bada bing, bada boom. Um, Brittany was pulled over and arrested without incident. She claimed she bought the car in a private sale and had no idea it was stolen. But she couldn't produce a title showing the sale. And also, her story was just complete bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Also, it's like, if everyone also knows your description, it's not like it's today where it's like you could see the face immediately, but mm-hmm. like, everyone's knowing this like manhunt thing and it's like, oh, it's a young woman matching the description of a the person who stole this car. Yeah, we're thinking- It's less likely that you, her doppelganger, <laughs> bought, uh, it? bought it through an auction? Mm, un- Likely. We don't believe you. I, no. Come with us. Clear it up further. Yes. As we put these handcuffs on you, <laughs> my dear, and read you your rights. Yes. So she pretty much went eerily silent as soon as they brought up the murders. Mm. Like when she thought she was just in trouble for speeding or possibly driving a stolen car, she's like, I can talk my way out of this. As soon as they brought up the murder, she's like, uh, I want a lawyer. <laughs> Where's my lawyer? She walked up like a clam. Yep. When they searched her car, they found her real ID. She'd given a fake name to the patrolman. And the pistol in her handbag. So Do you know what the fake name was? I don't. That's okay. That's okay. I was just curious. I'm sure it was something like Jane Doe. (laughs) (laughs) Jane Smith. Uh, Sees the road sign. Uh, Michelle. Street. (laughs) Is my name? I am Sarah Exit. <laughs> Exit 49? <laughs> I'm just gonna start making up fake names based on street names. But anyway, getting back to uh, Brittany being, um, having her comeuppance, you know? Yeah, so she's been arrested. She has her ID in her bag and the pistol, the murder weapon for both murders, still on her. Girl! 
even more incriminating, the car still had Grant's registration and proof of insurance in the glove box. Girl! So his name is literally in the car. Oh my god. So, Brittany was first extradited to North Carolina, where she was tried for the murder of Jack McKenna. Improper disposal of his body and the improper disposal of the baby, along with a few other minor charges related to the theft of the gun. She, at first, refused to cooperate and stayed, again, eerily silent during the interrogations. Mm. After talking with a court-appointed lawyer, Brittany began to open up, but with the intention of pleading not guilty by temporary insanity. Mm. She and her lawyer argued that due to the ongoing abuse from Jack, coupled with the trauma of losing her baby... She was not in her right mind when she committed the crimes. That it was a crime of passion in a moment of deep trauma and grief. Mm -hmm. Which, all those things I would agree are true, but do they remove her culpability? Yeah, that's, that's that's the question in them. So, this is where we got all of those earlier details and quotes from Brittany is during these interrogations where she's setting up a temporary insanity plea. Right. The public was split between seeing her as a cold and calculated killer and having sympathy for a young woman who lost her baby and was just trying to survive. The prosecution argued that by Brittany's own account of the events, she saw Jack asleep in the backyard, decided he had to pay for the death of their baby, went into a separate room to retrieve the gun, and stood over his sleeping body and then shot him nine times. And they're saying, like, that's premeditated. Yeah. Yeah. You, you looked at it, thought about it, and... Like, you had to... You had... There were a few minutes where you were gathering things to commit this Like, murder. it wasn't quite a game-time decision, but it was, like, within a few moments, you kind of made that decision. Right. And that's the thing about, like, the idea of premeditated, is it doesn't have to be, like, you sat Planned down and schemed... Months. Right, that you schemed it for weeks or days or whatever. They're like, premeditation can be minutes. It's the idea that you walked away from someone... And then came back with the intention to kill. Or the idea that you went somewhere with a weapon knowing that you might kill someone with it. Yeah. That's 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 what premeditation means. So this all shows motive and premeditation, if only by a few minutes. They painted it as a revenge killing by someone with nothing to lose and not a lapse in sanity. In the end, the jury found her guilty of second-degree murder, and she was sentenced to 20 years in prison. The mandatory sentence for this crime was... Second-degree? There were explanations for why it was second versus first. I forget exactly what the reasoning was. It's... those The rules are hazy to me, so I was like, I forget every single time. I think the jury had first and second-degree as like options like mm-hmm. on the table and maybe there was some sympathy for the situation right so okay. they gave her second degree instead of first but this is only in this is just for, for um, jack murder in north carolina okay does not do anything for the <laughs> the other come up it's yeah so the mandatory sentence for this crime was anywhere between 12 years to life in prison so the judge did also show some leniency with the sentencing she yeah 20 it was like years. 20 years but also, the minimum for secondary murder is apparently only 12 years. Oh, so Jesus she, Christ. She could have gotten lower. She could have gotten much worse. <laughs> Brittany was then extradited to Tennessee to stand trial for Grant's murder. Here, she pleaded guilty to second-degree murder in conjunction with auto theft um, and was sentenced to 25 years in a Tennessee prison to be served after her time in North Carolina. Oh, okay. So it's like you get these consecutive things. Yeah. So it's really you got like a 45-year sentence. Right, yeah, because... She's going to serve in North Carolina prisons, and then she's going to serve in Tennessee. Yikes. 
Despite how the public was split on whether or not she was justified in Jack's murder, everyone viewed Grant's murder as senseless and a calculated move on Brittany's part. Yeah, I can understand that. And I think that's why she pled guilty, because she didn't have There was a really defense. no arguing that yeah. point. Like, you are, are like a caged animal at mm-hmm. that point, which I can sort of sympathize with that, I guess, in like in concept. I I don't condone any of her actions. But it's like, yeah, you're high alert, you go, this is a threat, and you get rid of it. But also, that's wrong. You stole a car and stole a man's life because you're on the run. Right. Because you, you're on the run. It's kind of you, like how they say... You knew that what you were doing is wrong going into that. Right. It's kind of like how they say one lie snowballs and leads to more lies. It's, it's like Jack's murder led to more murders it because escalates. she didn't want to get caught. It escalates. Yeah. Because, yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, I, I feel like if she didn't get caught when she did, she would probably have kept doing that I, yeah, as, I like a, like, as, like, a defense sort of thing, even though I it's think- not like you're active it's not like active like self-defense like oh i killed him in self-defense it's it's like the the theoretical of that like you're so on alert that you would just you just keep doing it you well it's like keep in a few it. years the story might have died down but i'm like they were talking about this everywhere in america like you could have gotten all the way up to oregon and i feel like this will still would have haunted her and she would have had someone bring it up and felt like she had to kill it yep. again yep uh, even if she like fucking i don't know even like hopped out of the country like supposedly if she made it to a border mm-hmm. like, oh yeah like went north or south to mexico or canada yeah if she hopped a border i feel like it would just have continued there too there's no ease in right well, guilt, it's also really she in a few minutes decided that she was going to kill a perfect stranger i mm-hmm. think she got a little too comfortable yeah with the idea of killing to protect herself yeah but yeah that is the Orphan of the Interstate, Black Widow Killings. Wow. Alright, so we're back for case number two. This one is an oldie. It is 1891. Ah, you know I love the 1800s. I love the 1890s in particular. Only person that can say that. (laughs) Only fun. So, for you, Catherine, as a dear, dear gift before I kill you. <laughs> um, oh, I knew it. I knew I'm it giving would you, someday. I'm giving you a case from the 1890s. 1891. Yay! Um, We are in Burlingham, New York. Okay. So. This is a gift. <laughs> truly. We meet Hal Lewiday, 67 years old. He was looking to hire a live-in domestic worker on this 100-acre farmstead in Burlingham, New York. He was a widower with six grown children. Okay. His youngest son, John, 37, who was mentally handicapped, still lived at home and could help around the farm. But with the 1800s of it all, they needed a woman around to do the cooking and the cleaning. Of course. Of course. Understandable, Um, I guess. Maggie Brown, 25, was at the workhouse in Newburgh, New York, when he went to post the listing. Ooh, no wonder she probably ate that up. Workhouses sucked. (laughs) After not talking long at all, she agreed to leave with him that day for the long trip to the farm in exchange for a $40 a month salary. That's big pennies back then. You see, Maggie had plenty of reasons to put some distance between her and Newburgh. Actually, Maggie had burned... Many bridges in many towns during her 25 years. 
But more on that later. Oh, what did she do? But as far as Hal knew, Maggie arrived from Ireland six weeks ago and had never married. Hal himself had immigrated from Ireland with his now late wife many years before. Oh, so they probably like got along because they were like, we're both off the boat from Ireland. Yeah. Oh, how's the homeland? And the, we survived the potato famine from the 40s. Yes, <laughs> yes. So th- there's some bonding moments for them that probably grease the wheels for this employment. Mm-hmm. After a few months into their boss-employee relationship, Hal proposed to Maggie. How old is he again? Let me remind you, he is 67, she is 25. Okay. Um, okay. The 1800s of it all, the that still seems all, big. Also, it's like, girl, baby girl, gold digging a little bit, I think, maybe? I mean, never been married, a 25-year-old spinster. He, This man owns a farm. That's money in the ground, baby. Yeah. yeah. So, Maggie eagerly accepted Hal's proposal. Remember, they are 67 and 25. That is a very, very deep valley of an age difference. Yeah, so his, his youngest son is, son is, older, is than, older than her. Than yes. his new stepmama. So, according to Hal, he enjoyed Maggie's company and found her appealing, although some neighbors argued that it would just be cheaper to not have to pay her as an employee. And as your wife, she would still cook and clean. She would have to do that under just obligation. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've been rewatching Anne with an E. <laughs> Oh, are you actually going to finish it? I'm actually going to finish it Oh now. my god, thank god. I, know. I love that show. I know! But it's kind of like how they were like, we're going to adopt a boy so that we don't have to hire a hand. Right, he'll it's have to strategy. help on the he'll farm. He'll have to help on the farm because he's our kid. Yes. Same principle. Oh, yeah, you so. have to cook and clean because you're my wife now. Yes, same logic. Same oh. logic. Sorry for that departure. I wanted to bring joy back again. <laughs> Nothing bad has happened yet. Not yet, but it will. Gossip spread about Maggie's motivations as well, considering Hal received a steady $12 a month pension as a Civil War vet. Oh my god. Apparently not bad for the time. Overall, it seemed like an odd pairing to the neighbors. You know, speaking about like the Civil War pensions for a quick moment, I remember like learning that there was like someone still alive. A person who, like, married someone who was getting their Civil War pension, like, when they were, like, 90 years old, right? And the wife would get the pension after. And she was, like, a child bride. Oh. Years after So the government's still paying Civil War pensions. And I think that's so wild. Well, not that far off from these two. (laughs) Maggie had expected to live on a well-off, profitable, 100-acre farm when she came to Burlingham. When in reality, the soil was full of large rocks, making it hard to farm. Howell and his son John worked long days on the farm while also delivering coal to supplement the income. This left Maggie alone for a majority of the day to clean up after three people. Mm. Um, Lovely. The- yes. It's not as Every- peachy as she expected oh, it yeah. to be. Everyone's dream. <laughs> Life on the farm was overall harder than she expected. This was corroborated by the long line of Hal's failed attempts to get and keep domestic help after his wife died. All had fled the homestead, complaining of the working conditions. One even claimed an illness that put her on her deathbed was caused by the conditions of the house. Oh my god. So, no one's perfect in this pairing. Nobody's perfect. You live it, you love it. Sorry. So, not long after they wed on May 4th in 1891, Hal came home to something 
wholly unpredictable. You see, his house had burnt to ashes <gasps> and his son along with it. Oh my god, you've got an arson involved too. I love I love these callbacks. Oh, absolutely. Not um, the fact that, you know, his son died or anything. Oh yeah, very, very sad. Maggie informed him of his son's death in a calm, matter-of-fact way. Okay. Um, according to her, John had carelessly left a lantern on while whittling early that morning. After the house caught fire, John ran back in to rescue Maggie. She made it out, but he did not. Mm. Except John's bedroom door was identified within the rubble with his remains behind it, and it was locked. <gasps> oh my god! And the key was in Maggie's pocket. Maggie! The coroner's report did list no signs of foul play, and the cause of death was defined as accidental suffocation from a burning building. Well, that story is sketchy as fuck. Yeah. That, mm, 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 mm. Um, so that's the beginning of the trouble from Maggie. And that was like just shortly after they got married. Like within a few months of their wedding. Mm, girl. Hal and Maggie stayed together, despite his children and neighbors being convinced that she murdered John. Maggie's behavior would only get more disturbing. So within a month that the house burnt down, she burnt down the barn and the mill. Oh my god! Citing that she wanted new ones. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just gonna burn this down because I want it new. So shortly after she went on her arson spree, she then disappeared with a strange man and attempted to steal several horses. I'm sorry, what? I'm 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 sorry. I'm sorry. Back that up. <laughs> she <laughs> Okay, I'm going to set fire to my husband's house, kill his son, and then set fire to his barns. But then I'm also going to run off with a man and start stealing horses. And now call back to my fucking highwayman episode. See, this episode What's with people stealing horses? Grand Theft Auto. It's But damn. Yeah, so she decided she was going to be a horse thief with her boyfriend or something. I don't know. The strange man. Okay. Do we get enlightened as to who this strange man is? Nope. <laughs> Phenomenal. We love it. So, you know, after attempting to steal several horses, she was caught, thrown in jail, and seemed to be well off her rocker. Holy um, shit. She's insane. Did <laughs> yeah. she run out of Ireland? Is that what happened? Jeez Louise! Um... In all seriousness, Maggie showed many signs of serious mental illness. In the jail, she ripped out her hair and screamed at anyone who came near her. She would later complain of snakes in her belly and invisible bugs crawling on her. This got her acquitted of the horse theft charges due to insanity. Is, okay, this is, is this why we have, like, modern, like, background checks before we, like, hire people? Is that why we have job interviews? Yes, Maggie's the whole reason that people said, maybe you should know who you're hiring. <laughs> Maybe, just maybe, um, we should know what we're getting ourselves into. Not saying that mental illness is, like, a bad thing. But, you but know, if you're burning shit down. If you're burning shit down. They should know. They they should know if you have a history of arson and, and murder and snakes in your belly. Oh, my God. I know, that's a weird one. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know why she would make that up, but... This got her acquitted of the horse theft charges due to insanity, despite how claiming she was perfectly sane. Don't know why he's doing that when she's complaining about bellies and her snake. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> complaining about bellies and her snakes. I know. How rude. So, she was sent to the Methuen State Hospital for the criminally insane. She stayed in this hospital for a year before being released into her husband's care. 
After this incident, Hal became more isolated from his family and friends, with many refusing to visit the house when Maggie was around. I, I feel like, you know, her being put into, like, an institution. I feel like that would really proof in the pudding that she, uh, deliberately set fire to the house and, um, killed John. Yeah. yeah. It, I'm with the town on this one. I, too, wouldn't visit if she's there. <laughs> so, because they were isolated and no one wanted to come around, about a year after her release, people realized Hal was missing. Getting into the Black Widowing of it all. I I think I I think I know what's gonna happen next. <laughs> Maggie told the neighbors, the ones that were willing to talk to her, that her husband was away on business. When Hal Jr., Hal's oldest son, came to the property specifically looking for his father, Maggie told him he was off in Bloomberg buying property. You know, they always say that they're somewhere else. Well, yeah, how do you explain a person not being here? <laughs> Touche. <laughs> What was you supposed to say? Yeah, I buried him in the backyard. <laughs> she didn't do that. <laughs> so, the idea that his father was in Bloomberg buying property confused Junior, considering his father already had a 100-acre farm and wasn't in the financial means to make such a purchase. He also didn't mention to his son that he was gonna buy more property. Yeah, it uh, sounds like uh, Papa and his son are in, in communications, like they talk. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Meanwhile, Maggie, not finding any of this strange, showed him a new ring, saying it was a gift from her husband just before he left. Mm. Hal Jr. immediately suspected that Maggie was lying and had done something to his father. I, yeah, no, those same alarm bells are going off in my brain, buddy. We've got a bad track record. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, conveniently enough, um, as Hal Jr. was leaving the property, he was stopped by two constables who were watching the house because concerned neighbors had reported strange activity. The men exchanged information and theories as to where Hal could be. Hal Jr. was adamant that Maggie's story about his father buying property in Bloomberg was untrue. The men agreed that it was time to get a search warrant for the property, and by the next morning, they were ready. When the constable and his crew arrived on September 4th, 1893, they found Maggie cleaning blood from the floor. Girl! Girl! She immediately became agitated when she noticed the men, screaming at them not to enter her home. They did anyway, because they have a search warrant. Yeah. In response, Maggie picked up a plank of wood and hit the constable in the back of the head. Holy shit. Screaming that she would cut out his heart's blood. I don't know why she wasn't immediately arrested for assaulting an officer, but they instead convinced her to travel to Bloomberg with them and find her missing husband in this <laughs> supposed property he was buying. Yeah, I love, I love, I love that. Like as that, their as their first step, they were like, "We need to get her out of here so she doesn't hit us with boards anymore." <laughs> but yet, that solution wasn't to arrest her; it was to take her on a little day trip. Oh, the eighteen hundreds of it all. No, we'll help you find your your missing husband. We'll just ignore the the blood. And the, the assault that yes, just happened. That we all witnessed. That we all witnessed. That totally doesn't mean anything at all. Your husband is certainly alive. Let's help you find him. Yeah. So, now that they were safe from catching a stray board to the back of the head, <laughs> the remaining investigators searched the house. They found a lot of blood. Yeah. To be specific, and I just want you to look at this list. I will read it, but, like, just look at this list. Oh, that is a substantial list, guys. They found a... Rag rug that Maggie was cleaning with a stain that looked an awful lot like blood. Hmm. A bloody stained rope. Okay. A bloody axe handle. How busy bored in of her. <laughs> okay. A bloody crowbar. 
a separate bloody wooden board. How so, many? Okay, how many weapons did this woman use that are all bloody? Oh my! Uh, I don't. Is, is she? Wait, wait, wait a goddamn minute! Is she playing Clue? Is she playing Clue? She's got she's got rope that's bloody. She's got a bloody axe handle. I know that's not an official Clue thing, but you know, for the amount of weapons that she has, she may not have a wrench, but she has a crowbar. Right. What's next? A separate bloody wooden board, not the one she hit the officer with. Okay. Two shovels. Don't know why she needs two. You can only use one at a time. Gets tired of the other one. (laughs) Bloody floorboards covered by weird amounts of dirt and hay. Remember, this is the house, not the barn. Mm. Blood-stained sheets, still in the bed, that had a hole cut out of the middle. (laughs) (laughs) Did she pretend to be a ghost? (laughs) Like, (laughs) wait a fucking minute. Did she murder him as a ghost? (laughs) I don't think that's what I'm trying to imply at all. I'm like, what I understood is that there's bloody sheets still on the bed, but there's a hole in the middle of the sheets as if maybe she had tried to cut the the blood out, but didn't get it all. Girl. I also don't know why they're on the bed. There's a lot. That doesn't make any sense. Um. (laughs) Anyway, it's a hell hole. (laughs) Oh my god. Holy shit. And their first thought isn't, she murdered her husband. They're, no, they're here to find his body. I just don't know why she's not arrested yet. <laughs> um, Innocent until proven guilty, I guess. But I don't know, man. Sometimes proof is in the pudding. Anyway, a little bit. They did not find Hal's body in the house. Worried by the shovels, they moved their search outside to the barn. One man was brave enough to search a small crawl space under the barn and made the gruesome discovery of an arm sticking out from beneath the hay Jesus. in the north. Christ, girl. The crew focused their efforts on this area of the barn as they attempted to uncover Hal's body. There was just one problem. The body was female, and there were two. What? (laughs) Wait, what? Holy shit, who is she? There were two bodies under the barn, two women, which no one on the scene could identify, and Hal was still nowhere to be found. Oh my god, the plot thickens. Yes. Word was immediately sent to Bloomberg to have the constable arrest Maggie, finally, and return at once. Thank God. Put her in a jail cell, please. The coroner, district attorney, and local doctor were all summoned to the crime scene. One of the women appeared to be in her late 40s, while the other looked around 20. The older woman was in a more advanced state of decomp. Both women were bound with cloth at the ankles, wrists, and knees. They appeared to be in sleep garments, which had powder burns from the multiple bullet wounds in both women's chests. Their fingers also had marks indicating they were wearing rings when they died, but had been removed after death. Like, everyone remember the new ring Maggie showed off to her stepson. Oh my god! (gasps) Oh my god! So... It was determined the older woman had died about five days earlier, and the younger woman only two days. They believed both women had been shot laying down, perhaps while asleep. All eight bullet wounds that the older woman had were clustered in a three-inch diameter above her heart. Jesus Christ, good at target practice, I guess, but Jesus, at, for what, at what cost and for what end? Also, that's overkill. That's eight bullet eight? wounds in a three-inch diameter. Why? Why? All around her heart. You got her. Yeah. You got her the first I time. You need eight. I don't. So because no one knew who they were, the women were left on display at the farm 
and ads placed in the local paper asking people to help identify them. Oh, I love the 1800s where they just kind of left bodies to be like, well, people will come by and hopefully identify them. Look at this decaying corpse out in the open. Yep. So great. Love it. It's a lovely um, roadside attraction. Um, identify the victims, please. Thanks. A few miles away from the farm, Thomas McQuillan, 75, was missing both his wife and daughter. You see, about a week earlier, on August 26, a Mrs. Smith arrived on his doorstep and said she was looking to hire a cleaning lady. Oh my god. His wife, Margaret, 51, and 21-year-old daughter, Sarah, were home. Normally, this is the type of job Sarah would have taken, but she was about to go on vacation and didn't want to interrupt it. So, Margaret agreed to clean this woman's house. About a day or so later, when she rode away with Mrs. Smith, she jokingly said, Goodbye if I shouldn't see you again. Stop, you jinxed yourself, baby! No! Everyone kind of had bad vibes from Mrs. Smith, quote-unquote, but she's like, we could use the extra money, I'll take the job. Oh no, this hurts my heart. A few days later, Mrs. Smith returned, saying Margaret had a bad fall off a ladder and wanted to see her daughter. Thomas wanted to go and see his wife, but Mrs. Smith insisted it had to be Sarah, and so Thomas watched his daughter ride off with the strange woman. Two days later, he still hadn't heard news about his wife or daughter. He rode out to the house um, in Walden, because Mrs. Smith had given her address, to see things for himself, and quickly realized Mrs. Smith had given him a fake name and a fake address. Oh my god! With panic growing in him, Thomas enlisted his nephew, Joseph, to help with the search. Because also remember, he's 75. So, he's like, I need young legs. Yeah. Joseph wrote to Walden to inquire about the fake Mrs. Smith. Word had just broke in town that the bodies, that there were bodies found at the Burlingham farm. This was not good news. And with a sinking stomach, Joseph asked a man who had viewed the bodies to describe them. The description, though vague, matched his missing aunt and cousin. He told his uncle what he knew, and on behalf of Thomas, rode to Burlingham to identify the bodies. (laughs) By the time he arrived, the older woman, who we can now say is Margaret, had been buried due to her advanced state of decomp. But the younger of the two was still on display. Joseph was able to identify his cousin Sarah McQuillan, and based on the description of from the authorities, they also identified Margaret. They now knew who the victims were, but why had Maggie killed them? Because she's a monster. Meanwhile, one of Hal's sons snuck back into the home, which is a crime scene. Okay. He brought a friend. Let's sneak onto the crime scene. That won't look suspicious. He he was looking for his dad, his yeah. dad's body. He's I, convinced it was in the house and the police had just missed him. Your heart's in there. In the kitchen, the two men noticed floorboards that didn't match the rest. Fuck. <laughs> the Bermondsey horror again. Yes. Um, after prying them up, they found loose earth that looked recently disturbed. They sunk the crowbar. I hope not the same bloody one, but one can only assume. They brought their own crowbar. They they sunk a crowbar into the dirt until it met resistance. What the crowbar hit was soft. And Mm. fully convinced that they had just found the body of Hal Luiday, they ran for help. Authorities unearthed Hal's badly decomposing body. Not sure how the smell didn't give it away sooner, considering it didn't seem to be buried that deep. But um, Maggie doesn't seem to be good at burying her um, victims. I mean, good bully for us, you know. Glad glad she's not. 
Right. Yeah, she's not great with disposal or being a person. Mm-mm. It appeared that he was dead before Margaret McQuillan even arrived on the farm. He had a cluster of bullet wounds around his heart and a head wound. He had been struck with something so hard that his left eye had popped out of the socket. My jaw just dropped. <laughs> okay, so Maggie's now wanted for three murders. They're moving her to a different jail in Monticello, and news of her crime spread, and the truth about her past was uncovered. Oh god, what did she get up to? So, if we remember where we started this journey, Hal met Maggie, she just moved to the area from Ireland six weeks ago, and was never married. None of that is true. Oh my god, of course it's not. <laughs> she was from Ireland, born in County Antrim in 1860, but she moved to New York State with her mother and siblings when she was still a child in 1872. She was known to fight with her family, even physically attacking her father and sister on separate occasions. Holy shit, so she has a history of violence. Oh, yeah. And would go long periods without speaking to them. Her brother, John, was quoted as saying she could not stay in a place any time when working out an account of her violent temper. Mmm, delightful. Not only had she been married before, she had been married five times. Holy shit! <laughs> Wait, five? Oh my god! Five including this or five? No, the five whole marriages before she met Hal Luday. Oh my god. Um, she was first married at 15 to a much older Charles Hopkins. They had a son together, Charlie, mm-hmm. you know, named after his dad. Yeah. The oh, marriage was kind of sad, though. I don't, I don't like when people get married too young. Yeah, yeah, no. It's, it's, it's She's, you know, sympathy for the devil, I guess. You can feel bad for the person at the time. Yeah. The marriage only lasted three years, at which point her husband died a natural death. Hmm. Ooh. They weren't... He was much older then, huh? Yes, much. Jeez Louise, poor girl. I mean, not anymore. Um, sorry. Uh, fuck you, but... <laughs> I, listen, it doesn't start off well. No. She was very fond of much older Civil War veterans with pensions. Mm. She married four of them in quick succession after her first husband died. God damn it. <laughs> All of them dying of somewhat suspicious causes, but nothing was ever proven. Oh my god. After her fifth husband died, she moved to Philadelphia with her son. She bought a shop, insured the shop, and then burnt it to the ground. Girl, she has a pattern! Um, after trying to claim the insurance money, she went to prison for arson and insurance fraud. We brought back insurance fraud, too. <laughs> this is an episode full of callbacks. At this point, her son was taken away from her, and she would never see him again. How old would he have been at the time? Like... I know her son was 12 when she left prison the first time, so he would have been about 10 when she went into prison. She spent two years in prison, and after she was released, she made her way to Burlingham, New York, and into Hal Luday's life. Okay, cool. So, now Maggie's in jail and charged with three murders. It would be nine months before her trial was due to start on June 19th, 1984. 1984? 1894. I just wrote the year wrong. It's okay. During those nine months, she acted much the same as she did when she was caught for horse theft. Screaming, tearing out her hair, swatting at invisible bugs. Some thought this evidence of insanity. Others said it was all performative. A majority of the public, along with the prosecution, were not convinced of her insanity and thought it was an act to get away with murder. Maggie claimed a gang of men broke into her home when the McQuillan women were over for dinner. This already doesn't make sense because Thomas said she 
came to get the women on separate occasions. Yeah. And to do work. And they canonically don't die on the same day. Yep. So she's already off the bat. Even with the 1890s of it all, you can tell a little bit if someone's been dead a little bit longer. So this already is not believable. But during this dinner, went outside to fetch something and watched through the window as the gang killed her husband and the Quillen women. And that's how they're all dead and she's not. Wild. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. Obviously, no one believed this. But while awaiting her trial, she got caught disposing of evidence in the outhouse. Girl! How gross. <laughs> I'm fucking... Oh my god. Like, every every time it turns around, it's just like, and another thing. <laughs> so, the outhouse was guarded by constables while Maggie used it. And while they're outside of it, they heard a gun cock in a distinct plop. Give you one guess where the gun went. <laughs> um... <laughs> The way I envision old-timey outhouses is much like a porta potty. It's just there's just a pit where mm. the stuff goes. Pretty much, yeah. Okay, cool, cool. So yeah, it goes into the pit. They search it. Hate to have that job. I have another list of the things they found. <laughs> oh my god. So they found a thirty-two caliber handgun, two boxes of ammo, a bottle of chloroform. <laughs> of course. A lady's gold watch and chain with the initials S-J-M. Have no idea who that could belong to. I know. Sarah McQuillan is just so happens to be dead. No clue. And two rings that would later be identified as belonging to the McQuillan woman. Of course. So. I was not shocked at all <laughs> by any of that. The chloroform surprised me. Yeah. Is that how she took down her husband? No, I think she just hit him and then shot him. Oh, okay. I think she's just shady and likes to carry chloroform. <laughs> she is shady. You never know, just in case. I, a rainy day. Yeah. You might need it. The gun and rounds matched the murder weapon for all three people. So this was a huge win for the prosecution's case. They argued that she killed Hal for money, and perhaps out of a little resentment, and that the McQuillan women were not random victims at all. They had a connection to Maggie. How? I I, would love to hear it. I will tell you. Please do. Carry on. Long story short is that Maggie's father, John, had a falling out with the McQuillan family as a whole when he first came to America in 1857. Apparently, he expected to be a full business partner in the McQuillan family's successful tavern. But when he arrived, they said they only had a job for his wife as a barmaid. Oh my god. Perhaps Maggie would have heard of this insult to her father growing up and decided to exact revenge as an adult. But also, Maggie had grown up with Thomas McQuillan's eldest son, Nathaniel, from his first marriage. They were considered a serious item before her family moved out of Newburgh. So, while I can't entirely grasp her motives, she Definitely had a connection to the McQuillan woman, and they were not random victims. Like, she was supposed to marry their son? She was dating, courting Nathaniel, who is Thomas McQuillan's oldest son. He was married and then got remarried. So from his first wife, not with Margaret. Her family and the McQuillans had lived in the same town, Newburgh, for a moment Mm -hmm. before her family moved out of the area. And at that time, she was serious with Nathaniel, but then they moved away. So she killed what would be, like, his... Stepmom. Stepmom. And half-sister. And half-sister. Yeah. Out of some revenge for 
her family moving away so that they couldn't be together? I don't... I, it's that, I or mean, she didn't have anything against McClellan's when she was dating Nathaniel, and now that she doesn't have that connection, she said, hey, you fucked over my dad in 1847. I would like to kill what? people now. <laughs> you know what? Let's go. It's on site. I don't know. It's, it's, it's not that I'm, like, questioning, like, that's, like, the reason. It's, like, it's her leap in logic. I'm, like, who is this really getting back at? Right. When it's, like, your family moved away. Yeah. It's not, it's not like they moved away or they said, no, you're not good enough for my boy. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't have that clear, dramatic, like, right. oh, spurned, that's why I'm murdering you. It's like, no, I think you pulled from a, a pool of familiarity for your victims, but I think you just like the thrill of the kill, you fucking absolute monster. Right. <laughs> like... To further the point that they were not random or it wasn't a coincidence, one of the McQuillan's neighbors, Mrs. Wright, testified at trial. She identified Maggie, who introduced herself as Mrs. Smith from Walden at the time, had knocked on her door late in August 1893. She was looking for household help and asked specifically for the McQuillan's. Mrs. Wright told her that she was at the wrong house and that the McQuillan's were right next door. But then she showed up at the McQuillan's house and didn't say, Hi, you're the McQuillans, right? Can I hire you? She just said, I need to hire, to hire a cleaning lady. Hmm. Hmm. So she that's, was looking for them. That's, that's very strange. That's very weird. Mm-hmm. Strange. <laughs> During her trial, the media was absolutely obsessed with Maggie. Many articles were written debating her sanity, discussing her many other husbands, and her connections to a group of Romani travelers in the area, calling her their queen. I'm sorry. What? That's so out of left field. That's so out of fucking pocket. It is, but also at the time, it was very common yeah. to blame oh, Romani yeah. travelers for crime. So I think that was almost their way of othering her more and being like, she's in league with those travelers. Yeah. That's why she's a murderer. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. That is 100% the reasoning why. But also, what the fuck from my modern standpoint? Yes. I'm just like, Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Some articles even speculated that the group of travelers planned to break Maggie out of jail before she was moved to Monticello. What the fuck? All right. That's, yep. Okay. But ah. at the end of the day, she was overwhelmingly referred to as the worst woman on earth. Like, they gave her a name. You know, that's a good name. That that sums her up pretty well. I mean, she might not technically be, but, you know, she's pretty up there. Yeah. Bold statement, but it's not what I'm about to argue with. No. So, despite her outbursts and lawyers arguing not guilty by insanity, at the end of her trial, she was found guilty and sentenced to death by electric chair. And that is the end. Well, yeah, I'm get fucked, I guess. Yep. <laughs> you suck, lady. <laughs> oh my god. Anyway, your time to talk. Make choices. Hey all, before we give our big reveal, pause and go to our Instagram at True Crime or Tall Tale Podcast and comment on this episode's post. Tell us which case you think is the true crime and which one is the tall tale. Then tune back in to see if you were right. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. These were very, very good. <laughs> but you have created a monster in me. <laughs> I, I'm pretty confident 
the 1890s one is definitely the true crime. Not that I'm familiar with it, but it has a quality about it that I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The first case you did is The Tall Tale. I am, like, so impressed by it because you peppered in all of these things. Here, I'll reveal it for you because I'm that confident in my answer. <laughs> case number one is based off of the Delta race on Hit Your Fucking Ride. Oh, my God! <laughs> I didn't think you heard it enough to know. Girl, it's on our Dark Vibes playlist. And also, the things that clued me in. It was the moment that I went, I know exactly what this is. Was when you went, and she got pregnant. I went, oh my god, it's a try. First of all. Second of all. And then I was just like, oh my god, her name is Brittany. And I went, damn, I know the lore a little bit better than I thought I did. Because I think one of their names is Brittany. (laughs) And then, but... I think what I'm the most impressed by, I was like listening and I was fully engaged. And I'm like, how did you make this have all of these like true crimey facts where I'm like, wait, she's on the run? How did she get caught? I'm like, where the hell did you pull that from? Because I early on was just like, I know that this is the song. but So I was like matching lyrics. Also, you did this beautiful thing where you were like, she got a moniker and I was like that is a lyric my dear there was the point where I almost said this and I held myself back because I was like it would ruin it because I almost just like glubbed because I was just going to use the term when she stole the car when she stole the car I was like oh so she hitched a ride now let me not say that so Jack has some brevity but like I am so impressed by it because I was thoroughly entertained because even though I knew I ended up knowing exactly what it was from the pretty early on I was like the way you are telling this has me on the edge of my seat I'm like how are you making this sound so fucking real tell me a wonderful liar tell me everything you lied to me so good it was like sweet wine it was so delicious like I was like that you made you made it so salacious like how did you amp that up to be so realistic okay (laughs) great vibe southern gothic i love it jack introduced me to this band and now i'm talking about it like i'm the fan okay so yes Catherine is correct case number one is the tall tale it is the song hitch a ride by delta ray i believe it is only available on spotify it's not a part of an album it was a single release when they were leaving their record company i had no idea So, Delta Ray is my all-time favorite band. I do highly recommend them. They have lots of songs that are true crime-inspired or just death-inspired. Delta Ray, we love you. Oh, huge shout-out. Wonderful band. Where I pulled this fantastical tale from. So, if I pull up the lyrics, I promise I won't read all of them to you. But the first thing I pulled from there is one of the lines is, It runs hot in the summer in the Piedmont Plains. So, I looked that up. There's the Appalachian Piedmont Plains, mm-hmm. which runs from, ironically enough, New Jersey to Alabama. Mm-hmm. North Carolina is in that span. It's along the foot of the Appalachian Mountains. They say the Piedmont Plain in the song. The band was from North Carolina, so I picked a town that fell within the Appalachian. Yeah, I was about I was about to say, I was like, damn, I guess I know more lore than I thought. Majority of the band is from North Carolina. There's yeah. six people in this band to give the listeners some context. Yeah. Three of them are siblings. Brittany is one of the lead female vocalists. She is the youngest of three siblings. She has two older brothers. She also is currently pregnant, and I'm like, I don't want to put out bad vibes, but she's much further along than the character in this story. Mm, and also, she was the singer that sang the song right, from the perspective 
Like, it's a very narrative ballad. Oh, yeah. It's the song is told from Britney's perspective. Britney, the singer, is singing, singing as the lead character. Yeah. It's a it's a role she's playing. Yes. So the character Britney, her last name is Lowenson. This was actually really fun. So Britney, the singer, is um, her last name is German. So I picked the German word for dandelion, which I'm going to say this wrong, but it's Lowenzahn. Okay. And because a lyric in the song, right after she loses the baby, it's he stole the one good thing we'd made. And like a dandelion with a feathers flying, the wind pulled my heart away. The name Jack McKent is in the song. There's literally yeah. a line that says, I met Jack McKent. He was a handsome man. Yeah. It was my ticket to a better place. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I knew it like when you said Britney and then all of that. And then you said Jack. I was like, they said his name was Jack. Yes, so I kept that true to the song. I clearly should have changed more things because I was like, no one knows this source material. Nah, it's good because I feel like I think you're introducing people to a song that they wouldn't know and also a song that's, like, about a, like, narrative, like, crime. But, like, I got to appreciate you peppering in all of those hints because, like, all of, like, the monikers and everything being, Mm. like, uh, Orphan of the Interstate, right? I was like... I got that one. (laughs) Like, I was like, ooh. Like, the song ends with her being like, and now I'm like this prowler who just is like a ghost on there. Like, and you just kind of get like this mystery, but you gave it a conclusion and you gave dates and time and sentencing. And I'm like, wow, I'm impressed by that. (laughs) Thank (laughs) you, thank you. Um, Like, that's where I'm like, where did you come up with that? (laughs) I pull so much out of my own ass. Amazing. <laughs> pull the wool over my eyes in that one. I What I really like about the song is the summer heat is almost like a third character. Yeah. Like, and I try to put that in there without it being too obvious. So like I guess I'm like, Brittany wants to leave here because it's so hot. Mm. And I mentioned something else about like, work getting back in the hot fields yep. agitated him. How did you pick tobacco? Oh, so I, um... Is it something that, like... I think I literally Googled prominent crops in North Carolina, and then I looked up the planting and harvesting seasons, and the harvest season Mm -hmm. ends in August, and I'm like that, and it starts in April, and there's the line that says, Jack and me, we never left the heat, got pregnant in the early spring. And I said, perfect, that works perfect for April. That is amazing. That Um, that is, like, reverse Sherlock Holmes in this stuff. (laughs) What made you choose 1968? I literally looked up when hitchhiking was the most popular. Amazing. Amazing. Like, I thought about doing it in the 70s. I'm like, was it going out of style in the 70s? So I read a whole article about, like, the hippie movement and when hitchhiking came in and fell out of popularity and it was kind of falling out in the 70s. So I chose late 60s. I love that. (laughs) I love that. It, It paints a picture. Like, and it, like, you took the things from the song that are believable, because it is a very believable and real narrative in the, in the song, but really adapted it to have all of these false facts, and I'm impressed. Thank you. Also, that date was the actual full moon in August of 1968. Oh my god. Or 69, really, because the story spans a whole year Mm -hmm. from when they meet. Because it says, on the hottest night under full moonlight, he stole the one good thing we made. Oh my god! (laughs) Holy 
shit, you were way too smart about this. <laughs> so I'm like, well, when, when was the full moon in August? I love all of like the little details that you like fully researched. Because like you also called back with rights to abortion too, with like mm. the time period as well. Like you made sure to put that fact in there. The song makes no mention of Jack's reaction to the pregnancy, but I'm like, if he's a piece of shit, that probably he's, he's not his reaction. He's not gonna want to be here. Like it's kind of like how authors, and I'm not an author, but it's kind of like how authors sometimes say you make a character, and sometimes the character tells you how they want their story to go. Yeah. There's the line where it says, um, and when Jack got mean, he'd raise his hands to me. They never mention anything about him being an alcoholic or being a drunk. But in my brain, that just perfectly made sense. Well, when he gets mean, he's an angry drunk. Like, yeah. this just kind of falls into, into line if it makes sense. Yeah. I also needed him to not have any friends or family that in the would, area. Right, that would notice him missing sooner than his work would. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like you said, the song kind of ends, and I always took it as it ends with Brittany, the character, killing Jack, and she lost her baby, and she hitchhikes out of town. Like, that's how the song ends in my interpretation of it. And I said, okay, where do we go from here? I felt like the character would maybe almost be too sympathetic if she had just killed Jack. Mm-hmm. I so, agree. So I was like, I need this point where she makes another bad decision. I wasn't sure how I wanted to go down, but I was like, right, so she'll, she has to kill another man because it leads into the Black Widow theme and she's hitchhiking. So it only makes sense that she would kill someone who gave her a ride. Right. And then the Grant character kind of developed. Um, I got the name Grant because that's the name of their bassist in the band. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Grant. <laughs> his name was Grant. We killed you. <laughs> his name was Grant Emerson. I named... The second victim, Grant Norseem. I just rearranged the, the <laughs> letters of his last name. Sorry, Grant, if you ever listen to this. Sorry, sorry, Hope. Sorry, whole band, we love you. Oh, you guys are fantastic. But yeah, in this story, one of you is a murderer, one of you was murdered. <laughs> I got his true age. Um, he is a father to, to two young boys. So I, those are <laughs> now, his facts. You really just like pulled some facts in there. As far as I know, he doesn't have a connection to Tennessee. I really did look up Route 64 and mm-hmm. where it goes. So it ran by. God, you it, did so much. Oh, everywhere it goes. Oh and my I God. zoomed in and I said. There. That's perfect. where it is. Perfect. This town in Tennessee, that's where she kills her second victim. Perfect. Amazing. This town in New Mexico, that's where she gets caught. <laughs> I'm so impressed by how like deep you got into this. <laughs> well, here's the thing. The trick to lying well is sticking as close to the truth as possible. Exactly. So I'm like, well, what's true? I listed what the type of gun was, but sometimes I'll put things in parentheses. I'll only tell you if you ask. Mm, um, that's a good method. So I, I didn't ask. had established that the weapon was a Ruger SMM version 1 22 caliber. I watched the same video about this. <laughs> this old man who likes to shoot guns and him talking about it. A, I looked up when this gun came out. It was available and popular at the time. So I had to look it up. I had to see if it was popular. I had to see if it would make sense that she could fire it. Um, it does hold nine rounds. So that's why I said she unloaded the clip. And then oh, I, I said the amount of bullet wounds is the exact amount of bullets that yeah. gun holds. And then I had to rewatch the video to see if it produces shell casings to see if there could be shell casings at the second crime scene. You 
I, I, you get an A plus for like creativity and like making this believable. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Hey folks. I just wanted to hop in here and say, even though case number one is not true, domestic violence very much is a reality for many people. And I just wanted to say if you or anyone you know is in danger of domestic violence or is experiencing domestic violence, the national hotline, if you are in America, is 800-799-7233. Please do not be afraid of reaching out for help or resources to aid yourself or others in these type of situations. Anyway, back to the show. Anyway, I have lots to tell you about our true crime. I know, I want to hear about the true crime a little bit now. A little bit. No, a lot of it. So, I used books this time, guys. I did not use the internet. (laughs) That's Um, what I said about pirates, too. It's like, oh man, guys, when we bring out the books, you know that we've gone official. So... Kat got me this book called Lady Killers, Deadly Women Throughout History by Tori Telfer. And I read a few cases in here specifically looking for my true crime. Um, And I eventually landed on the story of Lizzie Holiday, the worst woman on earth. (laughs) Maggie in my story is Lizzie. Her husband was Paul Holiday, not Hal Lewiday. There's (laughs) not a large leap there. The names of the victims remained the same. It was Margaret and Sarah McQuillan. Mm -hmm. Um, Didn't change any of those. The places stayed the same and the years. And also Hal Jr., his son, was Paul Jr. Paul Jr., okay. The largest discrepancies, I would say, is there's lots more to know about her five marriages. Oh my god, please tell me everything about her five marriages. So her first husband was significantly older than her. He worked in like a factory where they made brooms. And so okay. it was like particles from the broom needles got in his lungs over the years. And that's what led to his natural death. It happens. Factory conditions in the 1800s of it all. Just Oh, never, yeah. So it's never good. So um, the factory killed him. That one was not suspicious. Although all of her husbands said that she constantly threatened to kill them. Wonderful. So Love that. Her second husband was Artemis Brewer. Um, Great name. Truly. Sorry you died. Doctors ruled his death as complications from existing ailments. He had a known opioid addiction, and his own brother, suspected Lizzie, gave him a fatal overdose. Oh, okay. Her third husband didn't die. He was actually still married when they got together. Oh, <laughs> okay. Um, That's they amazing. They moved to Vermont, which actually wasn't that far away because they were in upstate New York. Right. To get away from his estranged wife. He kicked Lizzie out when she stole from him. He was going on a trip and told her to be gone by the time he got back. She was gone. And so was everything in that house that wasn't nailed down. <laughs> okay, hate her, but also that's kind of an iconic move. Oh, definitely. Um, So they never got divorced. So she, she was definitely still married. She to was him. just kind of, wait, uh, I thought you said that he was still married to someone else. Yes. So. I don't know how they got married. So it, it was like their marriage. They went across their, state lines. Their marriage wasn't really legal. To begin with, To no. begin with, so. Mm, her fourth marriage only lasted a week. She tried to kill him with a poison cup of tea. He survived when he returned to their house. Lizzie and her son were gone, along with everything not nailed down. Again! Her fifth husband was age-appropriate, and they did appear to be in love, but she fled from him when he confessed to her that he had beat his last wife to death. Which is awful. Terrible thing to do, but I'm like... Hot calling the kettle I'm like, black, though! Geez. I'm like, Lizzie, you definitely tried to kill at least one of your husbands, and you might have successfully killed one. 
Like, that's the pot calling the kettle black, dear. I'm so sorry. And all of the ones except for like, the last one were Civil War veterans with pensions. Ah. Uh, she loves a pension. She wanted that mm, pension money. So while awaiting her trial, Lizzie was interviewed by Nellie Bly, who was quite famous at the time for going undercover at the Women's Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell Island. I've heard of Nellie Bly before. Yeah, so she's very much like a figurehead of this time. Yeah. And the investigative reporting that she did while pretending to be insane in this asylum on the yeah. conditions and everything. <gasps> I do remember her. Oh, thank you for reminding me. Yes. Just to give you an idea, that's how much attention this case got that Nellie Bly said, I need to interview this woman. Okay. you'll love this this was just for you oh some people also claimed that lizzie was jack the ripper oh my god this is for me simply because i think she claimed it at one point and then retracted it and there's a time where she can't be tracked down and that time is the same time as the killing so they're like she was in england killing killing sex workers and then she came back here and then killed more people and i'm like the killings are so different don't even joke i yeah, don't even joke, but goddamn do I love outlandish Jack the Ripper theories. That is that is just for me. It truly is. I, oh my god. <laughs> this theory has largely been universally debunked. Yeah, no, absolutely not. She is not Jack the Ripper, but also, like, it's fucking hilarious that that's a suggestion. Lizzie was actually the first woman sentenced to death by electric chair. Oh. But that never happens. Um, in terms of, she never was executed. Oh? The public changed its tune after she was sentenced. They definitely thought she deserved to be found guilty, but they didn't expect her to get death by electric chair. Oh, they went, is that too violent for a woman? And having never seen a woman die by electric chair before, they petitioned the governor of New York to take another look at Lizzie's case, to have her sanity re-evaluated. So three doctors observed her for a month. And in the end, determined that she was very intelligent and perfectly capable of planning and executing three murders. Mm-hmm. But she lacked the ability to resist impulse. One doctor called it conscious impulsive insanity. So they declared her insane. She was instead sent to Methuen State Hospital for the criminally insane. So she she had her sentence commuted. She she avoided the death sentence. Yes. She was a model prisoner slash patient, except for two incidents. Lizzie and a fellow patient, Jane Shannon, attacked a young attendant, Kate Ward, in a bathroom. Jane restrained Kate while Lizzie brutally beat her. The other attendants realized what was happening and stopped the attack, saving Kate's life. However, the next person she attacked while in this hospital would not make it out alive. Nellie Wicks. So we have another Nellie. Nellie. It's a good name. It's It's a great name. It's a name that's not around often anymore. No. Great name at the time. But um, Nellie Wicks was described as the best attendant at the hospital. At 24, she was already head attendant in the women's ward. She worked directly with Lizzie, who became so calm at this point that she was given sewing privileges. In 1906, Wicks announced that she planned to leave the hospital and studied to be a training nurse. Lizzie had grown quite attached to Nellie and begged her not to leave. When Mm. begging didn't work, she started to threaten her. But with it just being, you know, crazy old Lizzie, and Mm -hmm. she always was muttering death threats, no one took it seriously. Oh, no. Lizzie grabbed the scissors from her sewing supplies and followed Nellie into the bathroom. Before she even realized she'd been followed, Lizzie struck Nellie on the head, knocking her to the ground. 
Lizzie used Nellie's keys to lock the door from the inside. She had learned from last time. She didn't want to be interrupted. <laughs> she then stabbed Nellie over 200 times. Holy shit! Yes, in the face, neck, and heart. Other attendants heard her screaming, but it was too late by the time they broke down the door. She died of blood loss. Nellie was the first known U.S. female law enforcement officer to be killed in the line of duty. Oh my god. When asked why she did it, Lizzie simply said, she tried to leave me. So you made her permanently leave you. Love that stream of, like, logic. I know, it's the same way that there's the cannibalism logic of, mm -hmm. I'm so afraid of being abandoned that I'll eat you so that you're with me forever, but yet it's... And it doesn't... No. It's not mathing. Yeah. But math isn't mathing. But I also can understand that it became a vengeance thing because Lizzie is a very vindictive person. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So my main sources were Lady Killers. Tori Telford did a great job summarizing this story and giving, like, the broad strokes. This book, Killing Time in the Catskills, The Twisted Tale of the Catskill Ripper Elizabeth Lizzie McNally Holiday. Oh, they even gave her a ripper, like, moniker. Kevin Owen wrote this book. It's lovely. I have it. Um, <laughs> as lovely as a book on murder. Yes. <laughs> but it was so informative. If you want to know just a little bit more, buy Lady Killers and read it and then read all about the other Lady Killers. If you want to know absolutely everything you could ever want to know about Lizzie Holiday, go read Killing Time in the Catskills. There is just so much. Wow. So much. I loved both of these so much. Oh, thank you. Now I'm like, I need to like read both of these. Yes. Because <laughs> I'm like, I'm like actually super interested. I'm like, I'm wondering like if any of all like... I'm, I'm gonna say like podcast goes like like our friends that have done any other deep dives I'm like ooh oh and yes the, I have a podcast recommendation for Lizzie Holiday Muriel's Murders is the podcast name they did a five parter oh. on Lizzie Holiday God I love multiple parts so Muriel did a wonderful job love it love it so folks now is the time for our wine bit. I promise this won't go into season two. This won't because this is the last one um, from the, the advent calendar I got last year. Yes, if you're new to this, I got Kat a wine advent calendar. She opened it on New Year's Day 2023. It is now 2024 and we've been cracking it open each episode to celebrate the launch of the podcast. Vintage. This one is aged for a year. We did 10 episodes. We used two of the bottles for, for cooking. cooking. <laughs> so we got 10 episodes, 10 episodes with a wine bit. This is our first dive into podcasting. This is the last episode of like season one. This is the last one of our 10 original first episodes. Cheers to that and to many more episodes in the future. Glug glug. Yes. What's this wine? It's a Merlot. Oh, how lovely. Anyway, it's a red, so it's for cat. It's my episode, but it's her wine. <laughs> it's not bad. Not bad? Smooth. It is smooth. A little smoky, but not bad. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't taste like dirt. And it doesn't have acidity that makes my mouth hurt. So it's good. It's smooth and smoky. <laughs> smooth and smoky. <laughs> God, I don't know where is, to go from there. That is the last of our wine reviews. Now all of our wine will be quiet. Thanks for sticking around this long. Thank you for listening. Um, thank you for hanging out with me. I'm glad that you enjoyed this despite 
absolutely knowing what was happening. I loved it. <laughs> I love. I was here for the ride. I hitched a ride. <laughs> I I was here for the ride of it all. I was like, oh my god, great storytelling, Jack. Thank you. Thank you for all your kind words about today's episode. Um, I'm happy to, to have finally told it. I'm so happy to have listened to it. <laughs> And now we get to start all of the fun prep for season two. Yeah. So um, for our lovely listeners at home, um, keep an eye on our socials. If you're not already following us, please go do so. And It's uh, True Crime or Tall Tale Podcast on Instagram. And um, we'll be announcing season two as we get a little closer to that. Thank you guys so much for listening. And we hope you'll tune in again sometime soon. Stay cozy, my friends. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.